I'm trying to not sound too judgmental of my past self a little bit, but whatever. I mean, I was a bit of a hard ass, you know, like I, I really needed um, someone to speak my language to convince me to give this thing a try. And at that time, I was just really full-blown science, science, science. It's like if you can't show me some some p-values and some effect sizes that shows that this works, you know, I, I don't, I'm not going to buy it. That hard ass you just heard is Dr. Gabriel Papalardo, and you're about to hear how he went from hardcore mindfulness skeptic to living on a yoga ashram. I'm your host, Dr. Ben Butina, and this is Department 12, an IO Psych podcast. Gabriel grew up in Cary, North Carolina, which is a suburb of Raleigh. In fact, Gabe spent most of his life in Raleigh. He did his undergraduate and graduate work at NC State. And these days, you can find Gabe living in Buckingham, Virginia, at an ashram called Yogaville. My typical day, I wake up at about 6 and blearily make my way over to um, one of the meditation halls, Guru Bhavan and uh, set myself up for an hour of meditation in the morning. Um, some mornings I opt to do hatha yoga instead. So I will go to a classroom and do, you know, the physical postures of yoga in a class, as many people might recognize as yoga. Um, and then I go to breakfast. And after breakfast, I hop in the back of a farm truck. And me and some of the other farm interns uh, head on down to the fields where we do a morning shift. Uh, we grow organic food and all that food is uh, more or less consumed by the ashram itself. So we're kind of like the farm to table farm establishment. Um, so we do that in the morning and then we hop back in the truck at 1130 and head back up because at noon we all meditate again. So for half an hour at that point in time, everyone goes to the halls. We get quiet, we get silent and we engage in our meditative practice. Um, then we have lunch together. Uh, the first half, the first half hour of lunch is held in silence while one of these swamis usually uh, reads some sort of uh, scripture, some writing of Sachidananda or similar uh, book that just goes over, you know, principles of yoga. Uh, sometimes it's some excerpt from the Bhagavad Gita or the Yoga Sutras, um, you know, just various scriptures associated with yoga. Uh, and then we have our afternoon shift. So whatever we're doing in the ashram, we, we go and work. There's another opportunity to meditate at six. And there are, uh, just depending on the day, Hatha yoga classes and scripture classes going on in the, uh, in the evenings. Um, and then everyone kind of goes to bed fairly early. I that's that's my biggest struggle is I'm always looking for the yoga bill after dark. <laughs> so uh, me and uh, me and some of the younger interns, for instance, uh, or not always interns, but people who don't want to go to bed at like nine thirty. Um, you know, oftentimes we'll grab our guitars or or whatever it is and and sit around and maybe play music or something until somebody comes and reminds us that it's quiet hours and we have to go to bed. <laughs> it feels like it feels like being in high school. It's very interesting. So how did Gabe end up at Yogaville? It turns out that depression runs in his family, and sadly, Gabe lost a brother to suicide when he was 16. Gabe's own struggle with depression came to a head while dealing with the stress of graduate school and a bad breakup. Following the ending of a, of a romantic relationship and grad school being what it was, I decided 
I was going to really start taking my um, depression seriously. I was going to start really making a concerted effort to work to change it. And I decided to, to double down on this mindfulness thing and see what it would do for me. But when Gabe's therapist first recommended mindfulness meditation, he was not convinced. What was his reaction like? I mean, I don't know how much I verbalized it uh, as much as probably I can tell you, like in my head, it was just sort of an eye roll because, it's you know, uh, hippie shit, you know, like seriously. I mean, like I said, I mean, now I, I literally live in a yoga community working on an organic farm. Uh, but, you know, I, you know, I kind of rolled my eyes at it there. I was very proud. I, I just I needed something that fit. Um, but then a friend of mine actually recommended an app to me called Headspace that I think a lot of people are using now. It's a phenomenal app. Um, and the thing that I liked about Headspace uh, was its presentation was secular, even though the guy himself who, who um, does it, Andy Pudicom, uh, is coming from a, from a Buddhist tradition. Um, but mostly the thing, like I, I got Headspace and I kind of looked at it and it didn't really do much for me. Uh, I mean, well, I mean, I kind of liked it, but I wasn't really sold on it. Um, but then I started reading um, research about meditation. I started actually getting into the, like the empiric, okay, what does it actually do? And I started reading these articles that were showing like, whoa, okay, an eight-week mindfulness course is showing reductions in depressive symptoms and anxiety symptoms at the same effect size as antidepressant drugs without side effects. Hmm, okay, that fascinating, right? I'm seeing articles coming out saying that it's actually like changing the structures of the brain such that if you were to put someone um, in you know, a neuroimaging machine and then measure them again eight weeks later, you know, you would see, you know, actual uh, changes such that the um, activity and the sort of reactive amygdala stress sort of triggered part of the brain are less active and then more towards the forebrain, the more thoughtful, responsive, you know, decision-making centers, those are lighting up more as a result of, you know, this mindfulness training. And as this, you know, narrative started building, and as I started learning more about John Kabat-Zinn and his work with mindfulness-based stress reduction. So, you know, this is a, this is a clinician uh, going and really empirically challenging a lot of the assertions about, you know, what meditation mindfulness can do for you and just kind of showing, you know, some pretty compelling evidence to say that if you really are a scientist, Gabe, like, you know, if you really are a scientist, you'll give this a try. Since then, mindfulness has changed Gabe's life for the better. And research shows that Gabe is not alone in feeling that stress in graduate school. Oh, and, you know, mindfulness in particular is such a, I think, a relevant one for graduate school, because I think a lot of people in graduate school, actually, and even people who are out of graduate school now can probably relate to this, that for about a good two years after you leave graduate school, you still haven't kind of shaken this notion that you should be working on something. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you're probably, you've got, you know, you've got your full class load. You're, you know, you're drinking research from the fire hose. You maybe I, I taught, so I taught at NC state for about four years. I had a teaching commitment you have commitments to your research lab. You probably, if you're anything like me, wasn't making a lot of money. So you probably had some consulting work you were doing on the side or some job. And then on top of that, when, by the end of the day, when you just want to go home and crash on the couch and watch something in the back of your mind, 
I should be working on my dissertation. I should be working on my dissertation. I should be working on my dissertation. It's like I talk about a mantra. That's a mantra that's playing in your mind at all times. I should be working on my dissertation. And so um, what I think happens in graduate school a lot, if you don't really take the, um, take the energy to compartmentalize what is work time and what isn't work time, then everything becomes sort of, work time that, and you're sort of resisting it, wishing it wasn't. Um, so I think the mindfulness thing for graduate students could be particularly helpful because it is about being intentional. And, um, you know, when you're working on your dissertation, working fully, but when you're not working on your dissertation, when you should be engaging with your girlfriend, when you should be playing with your dog, when you should be playing with your kids, you know, actually being there. And that feeling of being scattered, of not really being present for your life, it hits people at work as well as school. Here's what Gabe has to say about mindfulness in the workplace. Burson by Deloitte recently did this whole piece on, you know, the overwhelmed employee. And I mean, it's really crazy, like especially for leaders. Like, I mean, they've got they've got the toughest. So, you know, the applications for mindfulness in those spheres are, you know, there's already good people doing that work and um and I, I can't recommend it enough yeah absolutely i mean it you know ultimately it would be great if mindfulness was built right down into the culture i mean you know how many people how many people can relate to the idea of like you're being pulled in for the you know, 14th meeting of the day okay that's an exaggeration but you're being pulled in for the third meeting of the day and then you look around the room and you realize that that person over there has their laptop open. They're working on something else. That person over there has their phone open. They're not paying attention. Nobody, you know, uh, the, the this other person has just come bustling, bustling in late because, you know, someone scheduled this meeting to start at the end time of their last meeting. And they're coming in late and they're huffing and puffing and they haven't even, you know, let go of where they came from to be present with what they're doing right now. You know, how productive can those meetings really be when you're getting together and no one's actually there? Right. <laughs> you know, so right down to the culture, that's that's something that could be done. But but then getting just more targeted, um, you know, a, as a well-being program, you know, mindfulness is a fantastic thing. One, it's it's incredibly inexpensive as far as as programs go. Um, but the company does have to commit to um, supporting it. Um, but like I said, those symptoms, those studies that have shown, you know, uh, statistically significant reductions in stress and depression and anxiety um, following even eight weeks of the intervention, um, companies like Google are already ahead of this. You know, if you uh, check out the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, that's a spinoff of Google. Uh, Intel did one, Awake at Intel. Andy Lee is the chief mindfulness officer of Aetna Insurance. You know, like there are companies getting wind of this and, um, you know, some of the top drivers of costs for uh, companies now, especially in the healthcare side, uh, you know, it's, it's prescription drugs and insurance. And what are, what are the top drugs that are being prescribed? Adderall, antidepressants, anti-anxiety and hypertension drugs. And what does mindfulness help with? focus, depression, anxiety, and hypertension. You know, it's like, you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty solid business case. Like, you know, bring in some mindfulness training and um, maybe help with all of the the major symptoms of burnout that your, that your employees may be feeling. Um, so that's the well-being angle, but there's also the leadership angle. Uh, your leaders are 
who everyone else in the organization looks to to know what they should be doing. And mindfulness is all about making your mind one-pointed, about being intentional about what your activities are. So if your leader is someone who's not able to maintain that focus, if your leader is someone who's not able to stay, you know, really aligned to what the organizational mission is, then that whatever distraction is happening for your leader is going to have a contagious effect. It's going to impact anyone who is looking to that leader for direction. So for a leader to take the time to develop the skills of mindfulness, to really be intentional about how they show up, you know, uh, how they display emotions, getting more aware of their their own emotions and, and how they impact their decision making um, and just being aligned to mission and vision. I mean, if you have a miss, if you have a leader that's distracted, you've got followers that are distracted. And if you've got a leader that's on point, you've got followers that are on point. So there's the there's a leader leadership argument as well. One really interesting thing about Gabe is that even though he lives in an ashram, he still considers himself very much secular. And that kind of tension between the spiritual and the secular reflects what's happening with mindfulness itself. There, there is a, a fear uh, sometimes of what's called mindfulness, And mindfulness is the idea of we're going to take the, the techniques, we're going to take the, the mind wanders off, bring it back, the mind wanders off, bring it back, we're going to take that. But then we're going to corporatize it and we're going to make it about performance and we're going to make it about, you know, we're going to strip all the yoga and strip all the compassion and strip all of the, you know, the, the spiritual reasons for doing it out of it uh, and just turn it into a, basically a brain training exercise. It's actually what already happened, what has already sort of happened to um, Hatha yoga, you know, the asanas, you see gym yoga uh you know it's it, it is now it's now a, a spiritual tradition turned into pilates um but you know so there is there is a degree to which so i, I do want to make it known you know while i still consider myself a secular person i have uh, a deep respect for um the spiritual underpinnings um having lived now amongst the people who who embrace them and uh and i and i and i do not i don't i don't ever want to strip uh, or, or devalue uh, the spiritual aspect of the practice. I took, I took it upon myself to go to this community and I'm just getting started. Like, you know, I, I have not been on that path for that long, but I felt the need to um, humble myself and, and actually really try to learn from their perspective as well, um, the spiritual side. Um, but I also am pretty dangerous when it comes to knowing what, what's out there in terms of the research and the literature and, I'm actually trying to get out to UC Colorado, um, excuse me, UC Boulder soon because I, I understand that they've done some interesting work there um, with mindfulness and neuroscience, and that's an area that I really want to, uh, I, I want to, you know, get to know the, those researchers more and kind of see where they're at. Aside from graduate school, Gabe has also worked in the field, not just the organic farm field, but the I/O field out in industry. And his story is about to get even more interesting as he begins doing I.O. consulting work for the ashram itself. I wish him the best of luck, and I hope we get a chance to catch up with him down the road. In the meantime, you can find links to Gabe's LinkedIn profile in the show notes, as well as links to Yogaville and a few of the studies Gabe discussed in this episode. <music> 